You're listening to LawPod UK. It's a podcast series that covers a broad spectrum of national and international legal issues. It's brought to you by the barristers at One Crown Office Row, and this edition is presented by Lucy McCann. On the 25th of January, the President of the Family Division of the High Court, Sir Andrew McFarlane, delivered judgment in the case of Re-X, secure accommodation, lack of provision. In his opening words in the judgment, he said the following, The primary purpose of this judgment is for the court, once again, to draw public attention to the very substantial deficit that exists nationally in the provision of facilities for the secure accommodation of children. There are a number, and it is sadly an increasing number, of children and young people under the age of 18 years whose welfare and behaviour requires that they be looked after within a secure regime which restricts their liberty. These specialist units are limited in number and, at present, the number of secure beds is far outstripped by the number of vulnerable young people who need to be placed in them. Courts are regularly told that, on any given day, the number of those needing a secure placement exceeds the number of available places by 60 or 70. It is not the role of the courts to provide additional accommodation. All the court can do is to call the problem out and to shout as loud as it can in the hope that those in Parliament, government and the wider media will take this issue up. In the hope of adding to the chorus of voices taking this issue up, I have with me on the podcast today Claire Chiborowska and Richard Agar. Claire and Richard are both barristers at One Crown Office Row in Brighton and are both family law specialists. They last joined us in a fascinating episode with Jim Duffy on the role of psychologists in cases concerning parental alienation, which I'd highly recommend. Welcome back to the podcast and thank you for joining me today, Claire and Richard. Thank you. Thanks, Lucy. Before we dive into the case of Re-X, which I read an excerpt from at the beginning of this episode, I thought it would be good to take a step back and get a sense of the legal infrastructure and system when it comes to providing accommodation to vulnerable children and specifically in relation of depriving children of their liberty. Richard and Claire, who is responsible in these circumstances for providing secure placements? The responsibility for providing placements falls four square within government and the lack of funding from central government has not marched in step with the significant increase in demand. We know from recent press that the number of young people with mental health difficulties has increased enormously over the lockdown period and COVID crisis. And to some extent, this is reflected in the increased use of secure accommodation orders under the Children Act 1989 or the deprivation of liberty provisions under the inherent jurisdiction. But the bottom line is, as the President said, and as you quoted at the beginning of this podcast, Lucy, there is a gross mismatch between the numbers of young people needing this specialist, secure placement and the number of beds available. And whilst I have talked about the COVID crisis emphasising the problem, in fact it was one that uh, existed before lockdown and I well remember a judgment of the former president Sir James Mumby 
criticising in equally trenchant terms the lack of provision for secure accommodation. The Children Act of 1989 was designed to be a comprehensive piece of legislation covering all areas relating to children and young people. And Section 25 makes provision for the authorisation of the restriction or deprivation of a young person's liberty where it appears to the court that the young person has a history of absconding and is likely to abscond from any other description of accommodation. And if the child absconds, he is likely to suffer significant harm or if kept in any other description of accommodation, he is likely to injure him or herself or other persons. And of course, that's been in force since 1991. It's meant to be a summary process. If those criteria are found, then the court has to make a secure accommodation order, which authorises placement in specialist regulated secure accommodation units. I stress specialist and regulated. And therein lies much of the problem in that when demand outstrips supply for these placements, it seems that the gap is filled by having to use the inherent jurisdiction of the High Court which Baroness Hell may not have attended when she wrote the Children Act, and leads to children, young people being placed in unregulated placements. Because there is a shortage of beds, the courts and the local authorities who bring these applications to the court look to the inherent jurisdiction, the parents' patriae jurisdiction, the parent of the state, jurisdiction to fill the gap between supply and demand in authorising a deprivation of liberty. It is a difficult jurisdiction because it feels uncomfortable to be using the inherent jurisdiction when there is a statutory provision. And we'll all recall that section 103 of the Children Act of 1989 says that no application for any exercise of the court's inherent jurisdiction with respect to children may be made by a local authority unless the authority have obtained the leave of the court and the court may only grant leave if it is satisfied the result which the authority wishes to achieve could not be achieved through the making of any order of a kind to which the act applies and the child is likely to suffer significant harm if the case is not brought. So it's meant to be the exception, the use of the inherent jurisdiction, rare to be used after careful thought, and as with secure accommodation applications, only as a last resort, because depriving a young person, a child of their liberty, is a major, massive step in their lives. Clearly, Article 5 of the European Convention of Human Rights applies Clearly, all the European case law, Stork, Guzardi applies in this jurisdiction. And it's one that comes to judges with a heavy heart, especially when, if the inherent jurisdiction is being used, placement is more likely than not 
to be in an unregulated placement. And the regulation is by Ofsted. The case law says that if the local authority have to place in an unregulated placement, that can be done. But the court has to be satisfied that steps are being taken to achieve regulation. The application has to be made within one month and the court has to keep that under close review. And this was indeed what happened in the case of Rex. The child X was the subject of a doll's order. Could one of you, Claire or Richard, explain the background to the case of Rex? Yes, of course. It's a very, in fact, I would say deeply distressing case. And I think within the judgment, it's recognised that these types of cases are dealt with by the family courts often. But for those looking in and, and having a look at this situation, they might be very shocked to learn about some of the difficulties that the young people face in cases such as this. As somebody who doesn't practice family law, it was really shocking. They are shocking circumstances and this particular case concerned a 15-year-old girl, an only child, who had what is described as significant trauma and adversity in her childhood. She had a history of absconding, aggressive and threatening behaviour, self-harm and suicidal ideation. She was assessed as having a low IQ, high-functioning autism and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. It's said in the background to the case that at around age 10, her behaviour deteriorated. Several incidents where she assaulted family members or caused harm to herself. When she was 12 years old, the children's services were made aware of her aggressive behaviour at school. She had a history of absconding. She was charged with assault on her grandfather. And the history shows that multi-agency support was put in place and that this did in fact have an effect for a period of time. But then subsequently, uh, the child deteriorated further, became increasingly violent towards her mother and again was charged with assault. And so it's a desperately difficult situation it was deemed that she was effectively beyond parental control and a risk to herself and others. And so towards the period leading up to the application, when she was around 13 years old, she was absconding from home on regular occasions, being picked up by the police, and then apparently assaulted her mother with a metal bar. And so at that point, her mother agreed for her to be accommodated under Section 20 of the Children Act. There was various involvement by mental health services and in April 2021, the local family court made a secure accommodation order under Section 25 and she was placed in a secure unit up in Scotland. This child underwent a full psychiatric assessment. Then she moved into a residential placement in England thereafter, which was considered to meet her needs. But that placement, however, only lasted around about a month and there were many occasions during that time where she placed, again, herself and others at risk of harm. And again, she was detained under the Mental Health Act for assessment. The difficulty then arose that she did not present with a mental disorder that required hospital treatment and was therefore discharged into a series of unregulated placements in the community that Richard was just talking about. And those restrictions were imposed under the High Court's jurisdiction, a deprivation of liberty order. In this case, the Secretary of State for Education 
was in attendance at the hearing. Is that usual for this kind of case? I think the Secretary of State was brought in by the President who directed attendance because he was so concerned about the lack of resources, the lack of placements. Um, Sadly, it's not the first time that the Secretary of State has been brought in. The various guises of of whatever minister takes responsibility for children's affairs, they have been called in. So many High Court judges and circuit judges have sent their judgments into the Secretary's criticising the lack of space in the hope that something might be done. Uh, Unfortunately, so far, little has been done. And you may have noticed, Lucy, that in this case, Rex, the Secretary of State actually said to the President, do we need to be there? And his response was um, as explosive as you can get from a President in measured terms. Yeah, it's fair to say that the judge wasn't impressed with this position maintained by the Secretary of State for Education. His response was, the lack of secure placements is long-standing and chronic. My view expressed during the hearing was that the stance taken by the Department for Education to the effect that it was not its problem and was the responsibility of individual local authorities displayed a level of complacency bordering on cynicism. It was, I observed, shocking to see that the Department for Education seemed to be simply washing its hands of this chronic problem. I think that's um, as strongly as you can put it. And I think what he goes on to say is that there are obviously many cases now that have been reported to try and highlight the issue. But the issue is only getting worse. There isn't enough provision for secure accommodation. There aren't enough regulated placements. It's a very scathing assessment of the situation where repeatedly judges are giving these warnings. When children aren't given secure regulated placements, it's often this dolls regime that steps in. And this is described in a recent case of Manchester City Council and CP by Mr Justice MacDonald as a deeply discomforting jurisdiction. This case explores the limits of how far such orders can go. Could you talk me through this case? Yes, of course. Um, This is another very troubled young woman, now 16, diagnosis of ADHD, but functioning about the age of seven, I recall. She has suffered physical abuse from her father, who had a history of drug misuse involved in violence with her mother, was missing from home on multiple occasions, threatened to harm her mother and brother with a knife, and engaged in self-harm, including attempts to take her life, and when missing was considered to be at risk of child sexual exploitation and involvement in organised criminal gangs. So, a young woman with multiple problems, grave difficulties that required urgent assistance, required a period in secure accommodation or being deprived of her liberty. In this case, P, Mr Justice MacDonald was concerned particularly with the restriction of the use of a mobile phone. Now, P was the subject of a care order, which of course gives a local authority parental responsibility for her 
which is shared with the parents. But the local authority are able to make decisions if the parents do not agree, save in life-threatening circumstances. It might be worth just pointing out at this stage the restrictions the local authority were seeking to impose to get a sense of you know how that would feel to a young person. And I think what they're setting out is that she wasn't to have her mobile phone, tablet or laptop from the hours of 10 o'clock in the evening till 8 o'clock the following morning. The mobile phone and any other device where she may contact her peers is to be charged by staff and kept in the office overnight. Uh, she was not to be given access to the house phone. If she wanted to speak to her parents, they were to contact her on her mobile. She was to be supervised when making any calls to friends and her peers and that those would be recorded, logged and shared with the social worker. That the Wi-Fi would be turned off to restrict her social media when there were worries about her behaviour. That her phone was to be taken away by placement staff if they felt her behaviours were escalating. And if she took video recordings of staff, staff have permission to go onto her phone and delete the video. Staff were not to provide top-ups. The child was to use Wi-Fi only so that placement staff have control over accessing her social media and they may use apps to monitor her online safety. She was not to take her mobile phone to the bathroom and she had to hand the phone over to placement staff. The phone had to be checked and any other internet-enabled device that she may have the use of and any issues of concern were to be recorded, logged and reported to the social worker. So quite a strict regime. A very strict regime. And of course, as Mr Justice MacDonald recognised that P, along with many other young people of her age, that her mobile phone is part of her very essence, essentially. It is access to her friends, her family, social media and the like. And uh, in other cases, private law cases, dispute between parents about when and where a child should use their mobile phone is significant and it often boils down to well this child will expect to use their mobile phone because their peers are using it. Mr Justice MacDonald said of itself restricting the use of a mobile phone does not amount to a deprivation of liberty but is more an exercise of parental responsibility by a local authority. But in delivering judgment, he went through the requirements to achieve deprivation of liberty under the inherent jurisdiction, reminding us of Article 5 of the European Convention on Human Rights, reminding us of the definition of deprivation of liberty, the Stork definition, that Stork in Germany from 2006, that there is an objective component of confinement in a particular place restricted for a not negligible length of time the subjective components of a lack of valid consent and the attribution of the responsibility to the state. And he found that for a deprivation of liberty, it is about physical restriction of liberty and that the use of a mobile phone did not fall within that definition. It's an interesting case because it again reminds the local authority that actually when they do share parental responsibility for children, that does extend to all manners of parenting effectively. And so if the local authority feel that that child is placing themselves at risk by use of their mobile phone, accessing social media and, and people being able to communicate with them from outside these places where children are being deprived of their liberty, it's down to the local authority and exercise of parental responsibility to manage that. I think the other interesting thing about this case is its context. Mr Justice MacDonald 
in this decision described the Dole's regime as a deeply discomforting jurisdiction, as I've said, but it seems to be a jurisdiction that the High Court are being forced to exercise with increasing frequency. In July last year, the National Dole's Court opened to deal with applications like this under the leadership of Mr Justice Moore. And although statistics are still being gathered, it's likely that the annual total of these applications may exceed 1,000. What are your thoughts on this development? Well, I've certainly seen a huge increase in the number of Dole's applications coming before the court, usually within care proceedings and in the type of work that I do. But effectively, the courts have had to create the system to enable applications to now be made in a central court in London and that there is more of a regime, a more of an understanding as to the criteria that's to be applied when looking at Dole's applications. But I think the message that comes out is that this requires legislation. This requires proper scrutiny. And at the moment, the situation is failing young people. I too have seen an enormous increase in Dole's applications. There was a stage a month or two ago when I was dealing with these applications at least two or three times a week. It was quite an extraordinary increase. The applications go to the High Court of Justice Family Division, not to the Family Court, and that is an important distinction. It is one that James Mumby found was frequently ignored, and he delivered a judgment just on what we should be heading our documents with. But it's an important distinction because it limits decision-making to high court judges or judges who have authority under Section 9 of the Supreme Court Act to sit as high court judges. So there is a fairly narrow pool of judges who are able to deal with these applications. And because of the growth, the lack of national monitoring and statistics, the president decided to pull these applications in at the initial stage to what is called the National Deprivation of Liberty Court. And that began 4th of July last year, 2022. And all new applications have to be issued at the Royal Courts of Justice as of that date. And there is a dedicated team there not only of judges, but also an administrative team. And you have the initial hearing there. And if it is appropriate to do so, any subsequent second or subsequent hearing can then be sent out to the district registries and heard by a circuit judge or the High Court family liaison judges on circuit. So it is creating a national court to ensure consistency to ensure that we have the statistics and that therefore the argument for the devotion of a greater share of the national resource to providing for these children in desperate need of care and support, treatment, accommodation, to match the increasing demand. And it's interesting what you say, Richard, about statistics and gathering statistics. What I found really shocking in REACT's 
were cited comments from the Children's Commissioner for England on her reports on children living in secure accommodation, even as far back as 2020. And I think it's actually worth reading an extract from that report because I found it really disturbing. She said, this year I have found more evidence about the growing number of children locked up who do not appear in any official statistics and are not living in places designed to hold children securely. Often these children are incredibly vulnerable, at risk of being sexually or criminally exploited or harming themselves, yet there's no space in a secure children's home for them to be kept safe. Councils are having to come up with makeshift arrangements like flats or hostels or even caravans. We heard of one child who's living in a holiday home and had to move out for a weekend as it had already been let out to holiday makers. Councils themselves know that this is often not nearly good enough, but they say it's the only way they can find to keep children physically safe as they wait for something better. These children exist in a grey area of the law with fewer legal safeguards than other children. Some are locked up illegally with no court authorization in place at all. I found that so incredibly depressing. So I, I guess one of the hopes of this new national court is that more children can come within that remit and have these kinds of orders put in place for them. What else do you both think needs to be done to solve this problem? I think it's a good step in the right direction. I think it's the case that where the courts can't fulfil a secure accommodation order because there is no provision, the dolls provisions are then being used to set up bespoke, what they call bespoke packages for children. But as you've just read out in that quote, those bespoke packages can often be inadequate accommodation with staff that aren't properly qualified or trained in restraint. And I've certainly done cases where children have been accommodated in caravans, in holiday parks, and that's considered acceptable. And it may be that that young person was actually quite initially excited to be in a holiday park, but I think the reality is that it's cheap, it's all that's available, and I think it's woefully inadequate. So I think the grey area of law is certainly a problem. But I think the Dole's Court does, to some extent, try and address that. I think it's important to say that the local authorities work very hard indeed to try and achieve the best possible placement for the young people in their care. And there are teams dedicated to looking for placements. And they are incredibly frustrated at the lack of proper regulated, properly resourced placements. And that is to some extent compounded by the privatisation of children's homes as they were. We have a system where providers of accommodation, both non-secure and those designed for secure, are looking for a degree of profit. And it's my view that this has swung too far the other way because one of the drivers of the shortage is children who need the extremes of deprivation of liberty, who need staffing levels of two to one, three to one, four to one, or five to one, are intensely expensive. And therefore, 
more and more of the more established homes that are regulated are saying no, they will not take these children at the more extreme end, which causes local authorities to have to look for these bespoke packages. Bespoke conjures up a vision of some luxurious arrangement, but it's not. Claire has spoken about the caravan in the holiday park. I've had a child deprived of their liberty on a canal boat with a staffing level of five to one. It's true that there was a psychologist involved on a very regular basis, and it is true that this was a temporary arrangement whilst the search continued, but it underlines the problems of the system that there aren't enough places being provided through the national system, that the private sector that has stepped in because local authorities have reduced their own provision are looking for profit and therefore are looking for the children who do not require the most investment in their care, in the staffing levels, in education, in provision of psychology and the like. We are talking about incredible sums of money per child in these bespoke placements. We're talking about many thousands of pounds a week. And that adds to the concern. There was also a report recently, I think, uncovered by the BBC about a private company that was running children's homes that were regulated by Ofsted and had a good Ofsted rating. And those placements, those children were costing £250,000 a year per young person to give you an idea of the cost. But in that particular report, it was discovered that the children in those situations, many of whom were non-verbal and had significant levels of need, were found to have been punched, locked out naked and had vinegar poured on cuts. And so we're talking about high levels of abuse that appear to be, certainly from that investigation, happening in these homes, run by the private sector at a cost of £250,000 a year per person with no proper scrutiny. Do you think it's too simplistic to say that this is a symptom of chronic underfunding of local authorities, which has happened over the last decade or so? Inevitably it is, although it is a major factor. The numbers of young people with the problems we're talking about has increased enormously. Local authority budgets have been pared to the bone. We know from the judgment in REACS that governments have said they are investing more in the scheme. I'm just looking for the uh, uh, figure. Yes, they say, this is paragraph 51, the letter from the Secretary of State to the court comments that the 2021 spending review announced 259 million of capital funding to maintain capacity and expand provision in both secure and open children's homes. And they go on to talk about the quality of that. Of course, that is not in place yet. We're not sure how many places this will produce and whether it will meet the demand. We now have received from the National Family Justice Observatory their document, Children Deprived of Liberty, an analysis of the first two months of applications to the National Deprivation of Liberty Court, and it makes for very interesting, in a terrifying way, reading. Clearly, it's only two months, but in that two months, they were able to analyse 
applications relating to 211 children, a number I found considerable, although the authors described that as a small sample. They stress that these are the most vulnerable. They describe them as extremely vulnerable children and that typically they have multiple and complex needs that are evident in behaviours that can make them a risk to themselves or others. So they really highlight all that we've been saying up to now about the extreme nature of these applications and the problems that these children and their families face. The mix of mental health problems, substance misuse problems, domestic abuse problems, sexual abuse problems. The primary reason they find for making applications to the Dolls Court is the risk the child poses to others, 24%. Worryingly, those with a disability represented 22% of this population. One point they make is that the vast majority of the children coming before the National Deprivation of Liberty Court are already well known to statutory services, i.e. they're accommodated in some way, be it voluntarily or under care orders granted under Section 31 of the Children Act of 1989. And it says that they have been in care for, on average, 14 months before an application for the Dolls Court is made. This report deserves a thorough read, and I'm sure that future editions will too. It can be found on the Nuffield Foundation website. And finally, I was really interested to read the judge's observation in REX about the current state of affairs potentially breaching the state's obligations under Articles 2 and 3 of the Convention. I know it wasn't raised as an argument in that case, but it is flagged by the judge. Do you think this will go anywhere? One needs the case to take it somewhere. Mm. Um, but yes, if the state fails to make provision and the worst, the very worst, were to happen, one could see a claim getting somewhere under Article 2 or Article 3 by the family. But it's horrific that the judge even had to say that and imply that it has some merit as a potential argument in the future. And what's even more interesting is his recognition that the courts are sort of complicit in that. You know, He recognises that the courts are being obliged to sanction a range of less than satisfactory regimes and in the same breath says that those regimes could be in breach of the convention. So it is very shocking. Yes, the difficulty caused to judges who have to hear these appalling cases. Of course this child needs to be deprived of liberty. Of course this child needs the intensive support and care. But it's not there. And that's the intense dilemma and there is an earlier case of Mr Justice McDonald's in which he refused to authorise a doll because he found it intellectually repugnant to authorise a deprivation where the state was failing to abide by its own statutory obligations. It is alarming, distressing and requires far more urgent attention than government seems to be giving. And that's exactly what 
Andrew McFarlane is saying in that judgment that it's a situation that won't change until urgent, effective action is taken by government and parliament to discharge the obligation that's on the state to protect the country's most vulnerable children. And those were his concluding remarks. And so it remains to be seen whether any further action is now taken to improve the situation. But I suspect we're going to continue to see an increase in Dole's applications and an increase in applications for secure accommodation orders. I qualified as a solicitor in 1981, converted to the bar in 2004. And I had always thought, in true liberal small-l fashion, that things would improve. And I hate to say it, that over that period, I think things have gone backwards. And even worse, there is almost a deliberate degree of negligence from government about the care of our children and young people. Well, thank you both so much for coming on the pod and talking to me about this issue. As somebody who doesn't practice family law, I've just found this incredibly fascinating. And it's really an area that I don't think is spoken about enough in the press or indeed between lawyers who don't practice in this area. So I'm really grateful to you both for coming on and talking to me about this today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. This episode of LawPod UK was presented by Lucy McCann and produced by the barristers at One Crown Office Row.